0: Forum.
1: Perfect.
2: Good evening, and welcome to a special City Club Forum at Spice Acres. I'm Danielle Roldoza, chair of the City Club's Dinner and Dialogue Committee and a proud member. I am pleased to introduce today's forum, a discussion on water, equity, access, and preventing water crises here and around the world. The inspiration for this forum came from Ben Biebenroth of Spice Acres and Spice Kitchen and Bar. A few months ago, news broke that Cape Town, South Africa, one of Africa's most affluent cities, could be the first city in the world to run out of municipal water. Population growth, overdevelopment, and climate change, coupled with rising inequality and political dysfunction, have converged to create an imbalance between water use and supply. It caused us to question, could Cleveland find itself in a similar situation? We're situated on one of the Great Lakes, home to a seemingly endless supply of fresh water. But are we taking that for granted? While Cape Town was able to avoid running out of water by limiting water use, their situation is not unique. Faced with increased periods of drought, many urban centers around the world are confronting diminished water supplies and struggling to balance the demand for drinking water with agricultural needs. How can we ensure equal access to water? What innovations are under construction? We've assembled a team of panelists and local and regional experts to discuss. Joining us tonight are Ben Biebenroth, chef, farmer, and founder of Spice Acres and Spice Kitchen and Bar. Dr. Sarah Horowitz, the program director of the Ohio Israel Ag and Clean Tech Initiative of the Cleveland-based nonprofit Negev Foundation. The initiative is funded by the state of Ohio to help Ohio's economy and environment through collaboration with Israel. It focuses on agricultural, agriculture, food, and water and wastewater sectors. Aaron Huber Rosen, a social entrepreneur and the executive director and founder of Drink Local, Drink Tap. And Alex Margevicus, commissioner of the Cleveland Water. With that, let's begin. I'm gonna kick it off with an initial question. And each of you, uh, if you want to introduce yourselves a little more, and then let us know, why is this issue of a threatened water source important to you, and how does your work address water issues? Ben, we can start off with you.
3: Sure. Um, So I think the water issue impacts us greatly because we are farming on a very sandy plot in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. And being a a very sustainable initiative to be a part of a national park system um, really begs at the question, how are we going to make this work without a lot of mechanical man-made or invasive inputs? So we have had to dig really deep as far as looking at our options in the scope of organic matter content in our soil to what types of plants we plant. are we growing perennial or agri- uh, agriculture or annual agricultural crops? And just trying to navigate these challenges really took a business plan and turned it into a lifelong mission of sustainability. And we are just rolling with the factors that were dealt uh, on an annual basis. As you can see, this is a very good year for us. So, okay.
1: um, My work, is uh, targeted towards helping Ohio water issues through introducing Israeli technologies. We were asked by the legislators of the House Congress in Ohio to look at technologies that are, that could help solve problems here in Ohio, which we researched and found that there are quite a number of. I was born and grew up in Israel. Israel is a very small country, eight and a half million people, of the country is desert, and always there was lack of water. We grew up knowing that we have to really, really save on water. By now, Israel has surplus of water. And the way Israel dealt with that issue, there are several ways that it did, and I'll just touch briefly on each. Through education, we were all taught how to save water, not to waste any water agriculture by developing systems like drip irrigation that saves a lot of water while increasing yield of crops use of brackish water which is salted water to grow crops and not to use the aquifer fresh water with developing special crops that can withstand that level of salt by desalination building up plants that are reasonably priced, the water is reasonably priced, taking the water from the ocean and removing the salts through reverse osmosis. And the last, which is really important, by recycling water, reusing water. 90% or so of the wastewater in Israel that is treated is being used for agriculture. It's number one country in the world. The next one is Spain with about 17% of reused water.
0: Okay, Um, good evening everybody. Uh, My name is Alex Margavichis. Uh, As was mentioned, I'm the commissioner of Cleveland Division of Water. Um, I've been at the Water Department for 33 years now. Uh, I am a native Clevelander, um, grew up here. Um, Interesting issues about uh, water. Uh, In in the provision of potable drinking water, um, sometimes we, maybe you could say, oversimplify what we do into three essential categories. It's supply, it's treatment, and it's distribution. And for many, many years, um, we didn't even give here in Cleveland supply much of a second thought at all. Uh, There are other parts of the country, obviously, that have to worry about having enough water, and not just in the United States, around the world, having sufficient quantities of water. Um, And we focused more on the treatment side and on the distribution side, Um, not so much anymore. Um, We don't take Lake Erie for granted anymore. Um, From a sheer volume point of view, um, it's a tremendous resource. It's 127 trillion gallons of water in Lake Erie. So the likelihood of Lake Erie running out in the same way like uh, is being threatened in Cape Town, South Africa is highly unlikely. Uh, Nevertheless, there are issues that we do think about. Um, uh, There are those who would advocate exporting water from the Great Lakes to the southwest parts of the country. And if you did that seriously enough, you theoretically could affect the levels of water in the Great Lakes. Um, There are compacts and legal agreements and international agreements with Canada that seem to prevent that. Um, Nevertheless, there are senators from out west who, say, they look at a satellite photograph in the United States and say, look at all that water right there. Why can't we just move it to where it's needed? Um, So it's not something that uh, we take for granted. Um, You know, more likely for us um, would be infrastructure issues. It is an older system. There is a lot of discussion about reinvesting in in water infrastructure and could things happen from an infrastructure point of view that could threaten the supply um, to Cleveland. Um, One of the hallmarks of the Cleveland water system, however, is the internal redundancy that we've built up. We're the ninth largest water system in the country, serving 1.4 million people. We supply emergency connections to a lot of our neighbors, a lot of the neighboring smaller water systems, but none of them could do significant help to us if we had some sort of catastrophic situation come up. So we build in internal redundancies where um, we have four intakes. You only see one of them out in the lake, the orange ring structure. The other three are submerged at the bottom of the lake. Um, They're up to 15 miles apart. Some take water from the higher level, some take from farther down in the bottom of the water column so that if there were something, uh, pollutant for example, floating on the top, we would revert to taking water more from the bottom or vice versa if something like that were to come up. Um, So um, uh, again, water quality issues and plenty of them that that you've seen in the news, uh, what happened in Toledo a few years ago with algal toxins and the whole nutrient discussion that's going on in the state of Ohio right now. Um, there's a legacy of lead um, in the distribution system that we always think about, and any number of other emergence uh, uh, issues and toxins that folks think about um, that cause us a, a, a lot of uh, concern and, uh, and focus, I guess, in what we do. So, um,
4: I'm Erin, and um, I uh, as I'm listening to all of you, I was thinking about why I started Drink Local Drink Tap, And uh, my whole reason behind starting this organization was really to get people to think about our lake, just to appreciate that it's there to think about it, and then we can work on caring about it, protecting it, stopping it from getting polluted, all of these things. Um, So our organization, what we try to do is we work from the behavior change side of things, education, you know, activism like beach cleanups and things like that. We do education in schools um, and a lot of community outreach events just to educate Northeast Ohio about the water riches that we're swimming in. And um, we also work in East Africa. We work in the other Great Lakes region of the world. And we literally provide water sources and sanitation for people there who walk four miles a day to collect water from a swamp shared with animals. So when we, when we bring these stories back from that Great Lakes region to ours, uh, some of that really does, I think, help people appreciate what we have and get them inspired to do more. So um, water is important to all of us, right? So that's why we exist. Thank you.
2: I want to talk a little bit about, so Alex, you mentioned pollutants in the water system. Um, Talk about what what do you think are the biggest threats to our main water source? You know, not only Lake Erie, but Ben, you have this 13-acre farm out here. What do you think are threats to, um, you know, not only the water system, but um, water collection itself?
0: Well, I, I mentioned uh, again about the um, the algal toxins. Um, you know, it, it is an issue in in Toledo. Um, got caught a little bit a few years ago. Um, it is uh, it is, however, treatable um, if you stay on top of your game and um, and and um, understand what's coming. Um, state of Ohio has gotten far more uh, rigid about. Um, algal toxins, um, especially after they got embarrassed, if you will, by what happened in Toledo a number of years ago. Um, There are a number of uh, uh, emerging issues that are out there. Um, A few years ago, um, I think it was the AP that did a lot of stories about um, um, personal care products and pharmaceuticals that get into the environment, get into the lake. It's interesting, These have been around probably for decades now, but our ability to measure them, to know that they're there, didn't exist before. We're now measuring down to levels of parts per trillion uh, on these things um, that we are never able to do before. Um, One of the issues um, uh, associated um, uh, uh, with that is um, we argue keep it out of the environment to the extent that you can in the first place. A lot of um, places try to have exercises where they recycle pharmaceuticals, if you will, or properly dispose of them. Um, The answer, in our opinion, is not it's okay for it to get into Lake Erie as long as the water treatment plant can get it out. Um, It's an entire ecosystem and it doesn't need to be long in there in the first place. So whatever we can do to keep it out of there in the first place is a good thing. Um, if you remember, um, in the last few years, there was a big fight with the uh, Army Corps of Engineer and the Ohio EPA regarding dredgings from Lake Erie or from the Cuyahoga River. That the Army Corps said it was just fine to dump into Lake Erie into open uh, the open lake without any containment, if you will. We fought very hard against that. Um, for 40 years, the country has done a great job at restoring and cleaning up waterways, and this to us seemed like a step backwards um, to be able to just go and do that. There are PCBs um, and, um, that are in that water in the Cuyahoga River from our legacy, from our industrial legacy of um, industry along the Cuyahoga River that had that in there, and to just dump it into the lake like that um, is not a good idea um, in our opinion, so. You
3: know, I would pick up off of that, Alex, um, <clears throat> really valid point. The threats to agriculture through our water table, in my opinion, uh, really start at ignorance. And I would say that because ignorance of our food system, ignorance of how it's brought to market, how it's processed, what is in it, and what it's doing to your body, is the fundamental beginning of the true threat to agriculture, which is subsidies for wasteful practices, and highly toxic practices in the first place. And when you start to look at the amount of water that it is required to both raise commodity crops that then majority get fed to animals, and then those animals are raised in a very toxic environment in CAFOs, and all of these things are massive threats to our watershed in general.
2: CAFOs are large agricultural a confined systems. feeding operations. Yeah, yeah. So, like a like a giant pig farm, for example. Correct.
3: Yeah, you won't see a blade of grass, but you'll see a very large manure lagoon, and a large rainstorm can overflow those, similar to the potash overflow that happened um, two years ago, I believe. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, so all of these things along the lines of blind resource acquisition, fracking, utilizing an enormous amount of fresh water, and then disposing of it, a lot of times in, in non-sustainable ways, I feel like that is all enabled by our, our lack of connection to nature and to the natural systems that allow for the cleaning and processing of rainwater that then comes down through the streams and into the rivers and into the lake. And without that consciousness, which I think is so important that you're building with Drink Tap, Drink Local, um, really it's the thoughtfulness around the system in itself of of what am I doing? Am I throwing a water bottle that's disposable out the window of my car that's getting washed out into the lake? Or am I taking the time to filter water at home and and take my drinking water with me and be conscious about the foods that I'm I'm voting for basically every day with your dollar, you know?
1: Uh, The way I see the threats to water resources here in Ohio is two ways. One is man-made sabotage activities which people don't seem to really think much about, but we see it in other parts of the world, and the other is natural disasters. In what we try to bring and introduce to Ohio from Israel for sabotage activities, Israel developed um, all kinds of sensing systems to look at difference in the water content, and if there is any change, there will be an alarm, and people will start looking into, if anything was put into the water that wasn't supposed to be there. As for natural disasters, harmful algal blooms is a major concern in Ohio, especially in Toledo, but also in other parts of the state. I've met with people and that's their nightmare that it will happen. What happened in Toledo will happen to, in their regions under their um, work uh, shift. So we are presenting two Israeli technologies, one that deals with the algae itself. Israel developed a slow-releasing floating biocide that can be spread on the water in areas of concern with algae and kill the algae before it becomes a major bloom. And we also look at the source of the problem, which seems to be runoff from agricultural fields of nutrients, in particular the phosphorus. Israel has a company that sells mycorrhiza, which have the root systems of all kinds of plants, 90% of all the species of plants in the world absorb phosphorus better and take it from the bound form, the the form that is bound to the soil particles. And using that approach, you will not have to use that much fertilizer, you will not have to use that much phosphorus, and hence there will not be as much runoff from the fields.
4: So I'll jump in quickly here. Um, in Africa, I deal with groundwater here. I work more mostly with surface water, so it's, my worlds are a bit different. I think you two are gonna be great friends, yeah. Ben and Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I just wanted to say, uh, from what I've seen over the years since 2010, doing this work uh, in Northeast Ohio, it's it's gone from the big nasty stuff, especially like thinking of something easy, like beach cleanups to the microplastics, to the the pearls that were in your face wash, the, the microbeads. You know, the conversations are happening, but a lot of the dangerous stuff that scares me is what we can't see. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, we've talked a lot about, um, you know, kind of human threats to water and the thoughtfulness and the use of water. Um, and Dr. Horowitz, you mentioned you grew up in a culture where that was what you thought about, your use of water and limiting that. So how do you think we can affect behavioral change to prevent and conserve water, not only on the individual level, but on the agricultural level? Sarah, do you want to maybe
1: start with... Uh, I'll start with just overall (laughs) culture of saving water. Uh, As children, when I grew up, and even now, the same campaign is being used. Save water. Every drop counts. Don't take long showers. Turn off the the tap when you brush your teeth in between. And that made a major difference in the amount of water used in Israel. These days, they are doing a campaign using um, very famous um, models and actors on television. One is a if you heard her name, and they they paint the faces as if it's a a, um, soil that is getting dry, And it affects everyone, because they know the actresses, and um, there was a study and they showed a very significant reduction in in the use of water by citizens in Israel as a result of that campaign. Oh,
2: wow. Erin, you can probably speak a little more to the individual level as well.
4: So I I, I guess I hate to say it this way, but water is 101 for most people. I have an environmental science background, sustainability policy, all this stuff, right? But water is 101 for most of us. You all are, um, you have your specialty in something, and it's probably not water. (laughs) So I think the easiest thing always is to just reflect on your own life. And it comes from maybe something from Facebook looking at a strip, skip the straw campaign or seeing the person in front of you at the grocery store with an extra, you know, grocery bag or they're bringing their own bags and you're like, oh, mine were in my car. Why didn't I do that today? It's, it's really these easy things. It's something that in a world of so many um, issues coming at us every day, we have to, we have to recognize the, the things that we can own in our own life. Whatever that is. And to me, that is owning how I use my water, owning how I impact the environment, voting with my dollar every day. I've said that a million times in my life. Every day when we spend a dollar and what we take home, like how we take that thing we purchased home, all of that affects the world around you. And it's not about just changing into this, like, crazy sustainability person today, but it's about just doing something. I always say you can't do everything, but you can do something, you can do your best. And so just, I I urge everybody to go home today and just look at your kitchen. Just think about how you're operating in your kitchen and how you're operating when you go to the grocery store and when you leave the house. What are you using that's disposable that you could get rid of? It's not, no, it's not going to solve all the world's problems. It does add up, and it does lead you to want to learn about other ways to be better. Mm-hmm. So, yeah,
2: you know, one one thing I try to do is um, bring a grocery bag, or if I'm walking the dogs, you know, leave leave the the dog waste bag open and pick up a few pieces of trash in my neighborhood. Uh, you know, you notice it and it's easy to walk by, but it's also just as easy to, easy to pick it up and throw it away.
0: Danielle, I was just going to jump in uh, about changing behaviors. I find interesting something. Uh, in this country to a large extent that's not used uh, uh, regarding uh, modifying behaviors and that's the price of water. Mm. Um, You would think in those parts of the country where there's scarcity that they could use price, charge more to try and get encourage conservation and yet they don't do that. Um, Water rates to a large extent are fairly somewhat uniform all across the country and and, you know there's the cost to, to produce it if you will but there's also you could argue a cost that you could charge to try and induce um, more conservation, and that's not something that's done. Political pressure probably to, you know, not have rates be too high.
1: Yeah. I just wanted to give an example again from Israel about the price of water. Israel a few years ago decided to nationalize the water and created the Israel Water Authority. The price of water jumped significantly higher, and the consumption of water went significantly down.
2: Okay, Ben, let's get into agriculture a bit. And if you could uh, talk a little bit about water use um, and and how you get water on Spice Acres.
3: Sure. So we have have two wells um, that draw groundwater up. Uh, We have about a 4,000-gallon cistern that does not go very far on 13 acres of land. Uh, So we allocate it very acutely. Um, We have shifted our transplant times to the evening, because we found that when we were transplanting in the morning and then soil temperatures would go above 90 degrees, everything, we would lose 60 to 90% of the plants. Um, no matter how much you water them <laughs> by hand, it's not enough. So we started transplanting in the evenings and then we have a hydration trailer that we'll tra- take around the farm and just irrigate newly transplanted rows on very hot days with rollout irrigation drip lines um, for a day and just enough to kind of get over that hump. you know. We've also found that plants waking up in place, if they're transplanted in the evening, and that morning dew allows them to relax a little bit and send down tap roots instead of getting burned. Um, And really, starting to look at perennial crops, something that will send down a root system 10 to 20 feet, as opposed to lettuce, that will send down roots 10 inches. Uh, They can access a lot more uh, deep micronutrients and minerals, and also water that's not accessible to uh, annual crops. And I was just, I wanted to touch on the whole change agent concept around what is able to be done um, and how do we get people to start thinking differently. And it really made me think about engaging them with the forest and the biodiversity around forests and how much you can walk through a field in the middle of a drought and see really devastated crops and then look to the woods and see a very healthy, biodiverse ecosystem that is all working together.
2: So We want to open it up now to audience members to encourage you to participate in the conversation with a brief question. Uh, If you'd like to ask a question, please stand up and someone will come around with a microphone.
3: Hi, Um, I'm just curious, uh, can you talk a little bit about behavior change and, there's some school of thought that says that we can change people's behaviors without first asking them to care so you know we've got some really engaged people here that really care but there are plenty of people that don't care and can we ask them to change their behaviors and what are ways that we can stimulate them to do so what are the barriers what are the benefits and how can we get a a wider community of people to change what they're doing without first asking them to give a
4: shit about this. Very simple uh, to me, changing our defaults. So if we change our defaults, none of you have a straw and you drink tonight. None of you have bottled water sitting on the table. Do any of you care? I mean, if you do, it's okay. But (laughs) I mean, that's the thing. If we change our defaults and the way that we operate as a community, I think it becomes, you create a habit, right?
3: I also think there's a lot to be said for the increase of the price of water, similar to the increase of price of food. Like, make food cost what it actually costs. Cheeseburgers do not cost a dollar. They never have, they never will. So water should not be as cheap as it is so that it's easy to take a 40-minute shower and just relax in there. That shouldn't be an option. So I think that forces a lot of change. When you when you have to change, you change, right? We, get, we all get away with what we can until we can't.
1: I think that educational campaigns work, and I've seen it in Israel work in at least two areas. One is conservation of water, and the other is keep Israel clean. When I grew up, everyone used to just throw garbage out, and Israel was very dirty all over. And a few years later, it was clean completely. And I'm sorry, also a third example of don't cut wild flowers, they're precious. In the beginning, we almost lost quite a number of species of white flowers. And then, all of a sudden, the country is full of uh, blooming wildflowers again.
0: I was just going to jump in. I I don't know exactly how the expression goes about not wasting a good disaster or something like that, you know?
3: crisis go unutilized. Right, something like that, right?
0: (laughs) You know, um, and there have been a couple game changers. Uh, Flint, Michigan has been a game changer in the water industry. Uh, about how we think about lead, about how we think about the chemistry and what goes on in the distribution system was this, wasn't was even thought of by a lot of folks, and now we realize that things are uh, important and what goes on there. Um, uh, Toledo has been a big change, you know, uh, about consciousness, about nutrients, and, and you see the governor of Ohio pushing harder for, uh, for um, limiting the amount of nutrients. He's getting pushed back from the farm industry, um, but um, uh, the, the I think using those opportunities, have. you know, to, uh, to spur discussion at the time, when it's timely. Mm-hmm.
2: You know. mm-hmm. Questions? So I'll follow up with a, a question about, you know, you mentioned education. But how, how can we implement that education on a larger scale? Uh, you know, is it just some social media campaign? Or where do we start? You know, can, should we only start with kids? Is the older generation lost on that? how do we really implement education that's going to stick?
1: I think that you should cover everyone, all ages. Mm-hmm. The, the highest impact is on kids because they are easy to convince. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> target everyone. <laughs> Social media is a great invention in this era. Television would be another very good way of doing it.
0: Yeah, we, I, I want your sponsor here tonight, Regional Sewer District, right? They're one of the best, I think, out there. At, uh, at using social media, at, at doing education, public education, and we try to do a lot of similar things, if you will, um, and, and and continuing on those fronts, I think. You know. yeah, and introducing kids is uh,
3: especially to the real challenges that exist around water, not only in educational or in agricultural capacity, but in day-to-day life, you know, and I think working with uh, a few different schools and the entrepreneurship programs that are happening in some of these curriculums really setting kids to task of solving the problems that will become theirs you know there's no getting out of this and starting to leverage their minds and and the capacity of the really the challenge is unfounded we don't know what's coming and we really don't know how to <laughs> solve it so empowering the youth of today to really start to identify these opportunities to grow through these challenges that are gonna be presented to them that we're already seeing the the beginnings of, you know, the cracks in the dam, so to speak.
0: Mm
4: -hmm. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'll I'll throw something, I agree with all of you, um, but definitely I would say, you know, we can't forget about adults, right? (laughs) They're the ones with the checkbook out there buying the things that are ending up in the lake and all of that stuff, right? So we can't forget about them and I, I do think that, you know, changing defaults is a huge, huge thing, but also like making it into like some of our, our corporate partners that we have through our nonprofit, brown bag lunches, coffee time, like we make documentaries, we share that on social media, adults watch those. So there are different there are different ways that you can reach adults too, mm-hmm. but it goes both ways.
2: Integrating it into everyday life in some way. We have to. Okay. So, uh, Ben, I learned a lot tonight on your tour of the farm, things that I had no idea existed in farming opportunities. So you're one farm in the state of Ohio that serves about 70-ish families. How do we get more people to care about farming the way that you are? I think you called it permafrost farming, where it's about things growing the way they should grow as opposed to forcing them to grow some other way. Like, is there a magic sauce or a magic wand we can wave to, like, help impart that knowledge to more people?
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, was permaculture was the word you were looking for, absolutely, no <laughs> worries. Um, uh, yeah, you know, that's an, interesting, that's an interesting question, right? We don't really, as humans, we don't like to change until we have to change. Um, so I think from an educational capacity with the work we're doing with Spicefield Kitchen, it's an introduction. To the conversation. You know, we, we often say we want kids to leave this property with more questions than answers. Because it truly does, the curiosity is what starts pushing it and introducing the, the challenges and potential solutions there. But you mentioned a really interesting fact of we, we serve about 70 families through our CSA. We see about 1,000 guests a week between catering and the restaurant. So where is our biggest opportunity there to create change? I think it's in conversation Mm -hmm. you know it's in trying to engage people to build trust with our clientele and then enable them to become the change agents in their household in their company in their community and start to take that level of stewardship the next step further you know and and that's kind of what we did at spice we we took a local foods concept and took it further and a lot of people are okay with sticking their toe in the pond, so to speak. And I think when you start to really examine sustainability, it's a lifelong journey. And it's not about checking the boxes of having the canvas grocery bags, and then I'm done. There's always something to work on. And it, it always comes down to really community building.
2: The building on how do we get more people to kind of buy into this, part of that, I think, is innovation innovation for you know, better water usage. Can some of you speak to how, how can we implement m- different innovations in Northeast Ohio along the Great Lakes? Um, and in the future, if we don't currently have access to that technology, how do we get access to t- that technology? And, and Sarah, you can speak a lot to that. You have a lot of knowledge on that. And Ben, you were almost forced to uh, be creative and inventive with your water usage because you, don't, you do not have some free flowing tap on your farm. Sarah, you want to kick us off with
1: that? Sure. So Israel is nicknamed the startup nation because there are so many startups, there are so many innovations, and it is all because of the pressure and the need. Um, Israel is a young country, very small amount of area, arid area, area, area that can uh, be used for agriculture, not enough water, and there are so many innovations. What we are trying to do is introduce those innovations to Ohio, and it is not easy. What I find is that the innovations can help here, and there are a few people that are interested, and quite a number that go to Israel to see firsthand those innovations. But when it comes time to really implement it, people tend to use the old ways. They don't want to start something new. They feel comfortable with the conventional old ways. And that's something that I have not solved yet.
3: (laughs) Um, You know, innovation comes in doses of crisis, I would say. Um, One of the real driving forces of innovation is need. And when you put yourself in a position, similar to buying a lease on a national park farm, uh, you need to figure it out, man. You know that was one of the biggest challenges we had from the National Park System when we exposed our agricultural plan to them. Was how are you going to get water? And our original plan was we're going to pump it out of the river with a pump and then a second stage pump, and it's it's basically about 95 feet down and 1,015 linear feet of two-inch line. Uh, turns out after we ran that line all the way down the hill, that's not a reality. <laughs> so. We have a lot of lay-flat hosing, if anyone is in the market. Um, (laughs) But it, it forced us to think outside of the box. We thought there was just this simple fossil fuel solution to our challenge. And in reality, it is, the solution is in nature itself, which is dealing you the same challenge, you know. So it just forced us to go back to the drawing board and take all that stuff off the table. All right, this one's probably geared more towards Alex, but uh, open to anyone. Um, you know, you're, you manage a water-rich area. You know, if you were in a water starved region, San Diego, Phoenix, a city like that, what, what would be your go-to? You know, is it rainwater capture? Is it water recycling? Um, is it, you know, just to reduce the demand? Um, you know, if you put yourself in that situation, what would be
0: uh, your, your um, go-to playbook? Uh, I think I'd tell them, go move to Cleveland where they got plenty (laughs) of water. (laughs) Um, And and, and actually there's a a grain of truth to that. You know, I I think to to the essence of your question a little bit, water issues tend to be highly localized, you know, Um, though water that we may conserve here, I don't know, can help out a whole lot in Africa, for example, you know. Um, It's just not transportable in that way. Um, So the issues do tend to be um, uh, very localized like that. Um, What you are seeing a little bit in California, um, and and let me go back a little bit on the innovation. Um, Sarah herded the two of us and a number of others uh, in the water sector from northeast Ohio, and the Cleveland Foundation paid for us to go to Israel um, this past March. So we got to see a lot of innovation. that was going on there, and uh, one of the big things I think Sarah mentioned a little bit is desalination, Um, and um, uh, desalination is probably a significant portion of the answer to um, areas that are uh, bordering an ocean, for example, like California. Um, It's expensive. Um, It is um, uh, uh, costly to do that. but they may, I mean, I'm not sure that there is any magic bullet necessarily. That, that could be um, a, a significant part. The, there's expense issue and then you have leftover brine, a highly concentrated salty uh, solution that you have to do something with. That has been an environmental challenge for those uh, dealing with uh, desalination. Um, you know, the, the U.S. EPA pushed conservation, and now there are um, water-saving washing machines, and low flow toilets and shower heads and all of that, and all of that has had a significant impact. Uh, Nationwide, the um, per capita consumption is down maybe 30% or so um, over the last 20-some years. So it it has caused um, a reduction and and almost a perverse effect in water-rich areas where we've got plenty of water, and yet as much as 85% of our expenses are fixed cost, and yet, traditionally, water systems have the predominance of their revenue is volumetric based. So as consumption has gone down, the revenues have gone down, but the expenses haven't come down in the same way. Um, the marginal cost of electricity and chemical to produce that a little bit extra water um, is only a small portion of the total cost to deliver water. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a little bit of a mixed bag in some respects, you know. Um, but. Um, You know, will there there be continued uh, refinements at at, um, fine-tuning and reducing per capita consumption? Um, Interesting, a a lot of people in the water industry, and it's looked at very closely, there is not an end in sight yet, necessarily. The per capita consumption trend continues downward, um, and we haven't bottomed out yet. Um, Some people think we will at some point, um, that there will become a limit below which, you know, you can't practically reduce household use too much anymore. Um, but again, uh, I, I, would think desalination is probably a big answer to, uh, to what they may be forced to do out there in drier areas.
2: Okay, let's wrap this up with some, one final question and final thoughts from each of you. So if you had a magic wand, what would you do to improve, um, water quality and, uh, preserve and conserve water
4: usage? Aaron, why don't we start with you? <laughs> <laughs> um, we did not talk to, uh, much about climate change tonight, but I think it's the single most, uh, the biggest problem of our lifetimes. Uh, working in the equatorial regions of the world, uh, making documentaries there about this I- issue and seeing the violence that's happening, just fighting over water is, is really horrifying. Um, I would say that we have to act as uh, humanity and and really um, um, urgently do something about climate change to at least adapt to it. Um, but there's no cookie cutter approach to any of this stuff, right? We all have our little villages everywhere around the world. We have our Cleveland Village. Um, we could be recycling water. We could be doing a lot of things that would help. I don't know what the answer is. and I. I don't know if Alex knows, you know, and he's been doing this for a long time. <laughs> so um, I would like to see more uh, policies that support water recycling, um, and also just more built-in curriculum in schools, um, teaching kids about this important issue like there is in Israel, right? Kids grew up learning this, so. Yeah.
2: Alex?
0: Um, interesting, let me just touch on climate change a little bit, you know, uh, again, you would think How do we think about that? Just just a little example, Um, if you remember Superstorm Sandy uh, from a few years ago, um, and many people think that may have been climate change uh, driven, um, that did have an impact on us. um, That riled up the lake so much uh, that the amount of turbidity and material in the lake went extremely high, and we were challenged at that time to make sure that the water quality was still okay coming through. So even we're not immune necessarily to effects like that. I don't know, I guess maybe the overarching uh, message or issue I would think about is um, we have done a lot of good progress in the last 40 years in cleaning up our environment. And Lake Erie is a precious, tremendous asset to the region here. Um, and we don't want to take backward steps. Let's keep the progress going. Let's keep forward and make the leg cleaner and better uh, more and more as we go forward.
1: Sarah. Coming from a country that is so dry, everything is just yellow, to Ohio where everything is green and lush, I was shocked to see the difference. Um, and my message would be appreciate your water, save on water, because other parts of the world are not as fortunate. Ben, final thoughts?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of go back to that water, water everywhere, not a drop to drink, right? I kayak the Cuyahoga River probably eh, once every two weeks at least. And I started taking my son out there and I if I had a magic wand that I could wave, I would I would create a mentality that we are all one people on one world. Regardless of border, regardless of race or socioeconomic economic divides, we all are made up of about 70% water, you know. And if we don't care for that as a community, as as a country, as a world, um, there's really no hope for us because it's not about entitlement and it's not about where you are in the globe or in the region for that matter. It's about we all have needs. And when you start to see the level of violence spike about whose water is whose, you know, there's a lot of desperation attached to that and the lack of understanding that enables that violence. So that's what I would do.
2: Thank you all. Tonight, we've been enjoying a special City Club forum at Spice Acres in the Cuyahoga Valley National Park. We've been talking about the importance of water with Ben Biebenroth, chef, farmer, and founder of Spice Acres and Spice Kitchen and Bar. Dr. Sarah Horowitz, the program director of the Ohio Israel Ag and Clean Tech Initiative of the Cleveland based nonprofit Negev Foundation. Aaron Huber Rosen, a social entrepreneur and the Executive Director and Founder of Drink Local, Drink Tap. And Alex Margevichis, Commissioner at Cleveland Water. Tonight's forum is sponsored by the Northeast Ohio Regional Sewer District. Follow them on social media. We have representatives from the Sewer District here with us. Thank you for your support of City Club Programming. This forum is presented in collaboration with Spice Acres. Thank you for working with us and preparing such a delicious meal. And that brings us to the end of tonight's forum. Thank you, Ben, Sarah, Aaron, and Alex, and thank you to everyone in attendance. Our forum is adjourned.